Welcome to Rooted and Reaching, a podcast from the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia in Columbia, Maryland, where we celebrate the beauty of our diversity. In our conversations here, we share stories of our journeys and explore ideas that challenge us in order to nurture the interdependent web of which we are all a part. We are rooted in faith, reaching for community. I'm Sarah Davidson, Director of Communications and Member Integration. And this week I'm chatting with my coworker, the multi-talented Kelly Daniker. Listen in to hear about the inspiration behind her April 25th music service centered on essential workers and the labor movement. We'll also chat about what it feels like to prepare and lead a worship service and about how she got into singing. Hey, Kelly. <laughs> it's so awesome to see you. I don't get to see you enough ever. I've actually, I know. I've seen you once in person, so. <laughs> Which is so bizarre in and of itself, right? One time. And we couldn't even hug it out. Kind of the it's just the one moment we have together that I have to hold on to. <laughs> telling you it's gonna get weird when we see each other it's gonna get weird no I can't wait mm. I love weird um okay <laughs> so on Sunday this upcoming Sunday the 25th you're gonna be leading a worship service called essential labor of course this episode isn't gonna air until next Wednesday following the service so we're occupying let's call it funny space <laughs> but can you tell us why this service topic why you picked it and let us in on some personal ties to and the origin of your interest in the labor movement. Yes. So I am the daughter of a blue collar worker. Um, my father drove a little truck for Entenmann's Bakery and he sold goods to stores and he delivered them with this truck and he stopped them. And um, it was a good union job. It was a job that gave our family a five a, a decent life. You know, we could, for the most part, afford the basics. We took vacations and uh, we had great health care. And so if we had to use that health care, we didn't have to worry about going bankrupt, which uh, for too many people um, is the reality. So I think right now, as uh, I think we can all agree, corporate greed has sort of taken over. It's become normalized. And there's been this real shift away from union jobs. And there's been a shift away from this idea that these blue collar workers have the right to live in dignity. Yeah. Um, I think they're perceived as less than, I think they're perceived as unskilled, and I think they're perceived as other. And so I find that really troubling. Um, and maybe that's just because of how I grew up, or maybe it's just some deep innate tie to that movement, but I find it troubling. And so I think it gets even more troubling now, right, as we sort of work for social justice in all of the places in our society. Workplace justice is a place where it all sort of collides, right? Because blue collar workers are of all races, they're of all genders, they're of all religions, and they are of all political views, which makes it sticky mm -hmm. and makes it sort of unpalatable in a way, um, super uncomfortable work, but I think it still needs our attention. And so if I get an opportunity to speak about it, I, I feel a real responsibility to it. You know, I'm, I myself spent years as an actor waiter and you know, that's super blue collar. Even the actor part is a real blue collar kind of a grind. And so I feel that responsibility and I, and I go back to something that Noam Chomsky 
once said that I heard. He was talking about the responsibility of in your life, if you if you have the opportunity to speak, if you have a platform, and that usually the people that are given those platforms are quote unquote intellectuals. But he reminded us that there are people in our society, and the example he used was of a janitor, that there are janitors who are equally as well read, who are equally as well informed, and they will never get a seat at that table and their voices will not be heard. Um, and so it just feels like a lucky opportunity to be in this kind of work and just felt like a good opportunity to sort of shine a light on something that I, I don't think we talk about a lot because it's sticky. <laughs> yeah. It's sticky. It's socioeconomic justice. Yeah. And who has a microphone? Right. Right. And, it, and, and, you know, right now we see these phenomenal workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who have taken that movement and they were beaten in their latest attempt to become unionized. Was there enough attention paid to that? I don't think there was. I think you really had to look for it. You had to go into social media. You had to read the right things. But it's not something we were covering on the whole. And I think that's because there's so much else that needs our attention right now. I, I don't deny that. But economic justice is racial justice. You, you can't really separate those two things. So, yeah, I'm really it's important to me and I'm lucky to have an opportunity to talk about it. I think you're going to hit it out of the park. <laughs> so can you tell us a personal story related to this year's pandemic and its effect on your loved ones that are blue collar workers or a loved one that's a blue collar worker? So interestingly enough, and this is probably a whole other podcast, but I am the daughter of a blue collar worker named John, and I married a blue collar worker named John. So again, a whole other topic, but um, many people know my husband is a chef, and he talks often about how in these last, what, 10 years, reality TV has really put a light on the restaurant business and chefs, and it's this super glamorous thing, right? But at heart, it's not. It is a 10 hour a day on your feet, blue collar, lifting heavy things kind of a day. And so obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, he was working in a restaurant and they were not following COVID guidelines in any way, shape or form. There, there was no accommodation made for social distancing. Management was running around without masks. There was no sanitation. And so he went and he tried to say, hey, my guys, my people, my guys and gals are in danger. I, I think we need to up our game here. And there was a refusal. And this went on for about a month. And it was, it, it was, ter I mean, it was terrifying. It was at the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't really know what was going on. And so we had to make a decision pretty early on about whether or not he was going to stay there or whether or not he was going to be unemployed for a period of time, because it's not like he could leave that job and go find another. Um, so he left. We, you know, we made the decision that, you know, we would figure it out. We had a little savings to fall back on, you know, which is a pretty privileged place to be. But this refusal on the part of corporations that have people's lives in their hands in the workplace, um, and they, they, it, you have no voice. And even as a chef, right. you know, he had no voice. He had no seat at that table. So. That was the scariest time for us during the pandemic. Other than that, I will say we've been very blessed and privileged and all of that is true. But that was a really, that was a really scary time in the beginning. Yeah, I can't imagine. You know, he is now, I will say, in a fantastic, it, it couldn't have worked out better. He's in a great working environment. They, they, And there are so, and I want to make that clear too. There are so many restaurants and businesses that are doing the right thing. And we have to be aware that there are workers in peril because people don't want to, they don't want to lose a dollar. 
Right. That's really what you have to have money to live in this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what was it like prepping for this service? What was beautiful about it and what was ugly about it? I mean, the best part of any service is having the idea for me, right? That's the most exciting part. You have this idea and you're passionate about it and it feels so great and you're so confident. And then you get into the nuts and bolts of it and you think there's no way this is going to happen. Does anybody else care? Will anybody else agree to participate with me? Am I enough? Really, right, is the question. Am I enough to to get this done? Um, so, yeah, the beauty is in the idea. The beauty is now when I'm sort of through that and I'm a little more rational in thinking about it. Um, it feels a little better now. But, yeah, the beginning is always really joyful for me. And the process is always a little hellish. <laughs> what is it like day of? Ooh, um, so people, I think that's an assumption, right? A lot of people know that I was an actor for years and years. And so there's this assumption that you just, you don't feel the nerves. I don't think I've had a Sunday where my hands have not gone completely numb and I have to shake them out or where like you're shake, literally shaking uncontrollably before you hit the unmute button. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a roller coaster, right? And you're not sure ever what it's going to be. And you're jumping off of a ledge and you're hoping for the best. So I, I do find it terrifying every time. <laughs> I mean, I find that that's in- wild for me to hear because I feel like you <laughs> are so, I mean, I know you must have heard this a million times, but you just seem like such a natural. It comes across well, as think- being such a natural and maybe, I don't know. I'm sorry that your hands are shaking though. I don't well, want- I mean, that's a good thing, right? I mean, like I used to tell my students, it's, it's, if you, if you feel that you just, it just means you care about what you're doing, right? You care about, you care about doing a good job. And so the nerves sort of serve you in that way. But, and it's, and I think the reason it doesn't come across, it's just training, right? Like I have been trained in a way where my muscle memory kicks in. So no matter what my body is doing in the moment, it feels okay. But the moments before it, yeah. Like watch me in service. You'll see right from like you'll see me put my hands down and like I'll that's what I'm like I'm shaking it out so I don't freak out. <laughs> body language is one of my favorite things. <laughs> I will be checking out your body language. For sure. Yeah, you'll see the terror. <laughs> and what does it feel like like right when it's over? Depends on how it went. Do you know right? Do you know right I- away how you felt about it, or do you need to think about it? I do. I'm pretty good at reading a room, even on Zoom. So some weeks it feels great. Like, you know, you've connected, you spend all this time and you hope it connects and you jump off of this bridge. And um, and some weeks it feels great. And then there are inevitable weeks where you just don't hit it out of the park, right? Where it's not horrible. You know, it wasn't your best or you thought you had something great and then you do it and it just kind of sits there. Yeah, so I know pretty much, I know in the moment how it's going. And unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. <laughs> Sounds terrifying to me. I mean, to me, it, it is every time. Like, how yeah. do comedians do it, right? Like, I know that this is like a worship service, but it reminds me so much of like a comedian getting up and just being mm-hmm. like, well, here I am. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's... It's sort of like a comedian. It's also sort of like acting. But the difference is, and I find this part really interesting, 
you know, when you're a comedian, you've written that material and you have worked that, you've workshopped it. You've done it several times. When you're an actor in a show, you've, you've rehearsed it and you get into a process of doing it eight shows a week. So, so you, you relaxed at a certain point. It becomes enjoyable. This is like, it's one and done. You're in and out. Either it happens or it doesn't. You can't get it back. You can't fix it. Right. So, you know, you're choosing each word really carefully and thoughtfully. Comedians and actors have nothing on these worship services. <laughs> <laughs> I've done both. I'm telling you, this is harder. Oh, I believe you. I, I hadn't thought of it before, but now I'm like, yeah, that does seem harder. The it's only harder. thing harder would be officiating a wedding. That's the one thing I thought. <gasps> that sounds really hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would never officiate someone's wedding. I think I would end up being like too stiff with it because I wouldn't want to overshadow their moment. So I would just be <laughs> the worst <laughs> wedding officiate ever. This is your day. <laughs> I can't mess it up. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of pressure. <laughs> a lot of pressure yeah yeah okay so now we got to talk about singing because i know your lovely voice and hopefully other people do too if they don't like what the heck but when did you start singing and what role has singing played in your life i really like this question because it takes i don't have a lot of early childhood memories i don't know why i don't but one that i do have that's really strong is when i was like four years old in the car with my parents going somewhere and the radio was on and I was singing. And I remember my mom, who is a beautiful pianist and musician in her own right, turning to my father and saying, wow, she's got really good pitch. And I remember it for somehow innately knowing what that meant, innately knowing that it was a good thing and also innately knowing that it was true. So I just had, it, and it sounds so trite to say, but it was a knowing. I just always knew that it was something I could do. Um, so as I got older and I, um, my mom got me into doing theater shows, it was the first place I found that I belonged anywhere, right? And so that gift of being able to do that opened up communities to me that I, I wouldn't have known otherwise. And it's always, again, it's always sort of daunting. You always want to, you know, you're not going to please everybody. Everyone, you know, it's, it's lovely to hear people say you have a lovely voice and all that you're thinking in your head is, yeah, I know 15 people who can't stand the sound of it, <laughs> right? You know, but just like from the, you know, from being in that business end of it and auditioning, like right. you go and dream when you sing for people and they don't even look up from their paper and you're like, okay. So sometimes it's a, it's mostly been a soft place to fall and something that always seems to come back into my life. Before I came to UCC, I hadn't really sung in like six years. Um, so it was nice to get back to that. And it's a comfort zone most of the time. Yeah. And that connection that it gave me with my mother, you know, every Saturday we would be at her piano and she would play and I would sing and we would spend hours like that. So that's, um, yeah, I have very, very good memories of my journey in singing. To wrap up here, Kelly, can you share a tender or a funny or a, just a memory that pops out to you of UCC? It, it is a memory that I have written about, but it is my favorite memory. And so I'm just going to do that one again. So every year we do the um, annual Christmas tree decorating, which is, again, one of those things that sometimes I think is undervalued. Right. These are our kids and they are contributing. These are. Our, and, and but anyway, that aside. So the kids were all making their decorations and I went out to the tree to sort of help them start placing them. And this little one who was about three, who I had known 
since he was in the nursery, um, came out of the room with his ornament and he looked up at me and he said, Miss Kelly, look what I made. And I just looked at him because I did not know that that child even knew who I was. I had never heard him speak my name before. And it has just always moved me beyond measure to know that we're making those connections even when we are totally unaware of it. And that he felt like he wanted to come to me to share that moment with me. That that moment just always gets me. I will. I have chills when I talk about it now. And it seems like such a small thing. But um, whenever I'm feeling like, why am I bothering? I think back to that and that that little one with his little ornament. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Kids are. The, I mean, when I I remember when I was in my interview for UCC and I can't remember what the question was, but I remember answering and saying, well, kids are the most honest people I know. And I remember that moment because I, I cannot even remember who was interviewing me, but they sort of stopped and like they hadn't considered that before. And I thought, I won't get this job. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the moment where I knew, right, I can have an impact here. What what I believe can be impactful and meaningful for this community. So yeah, that's my favorite memory. Yeah, if you force someone to have an epiphany during an interview, I think that's a pretty good sign. You're like, crushed it. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Well, thanks for um, letting me be part of it. I'm I'm so, I mean, I have been listening to your podcast. It's pretty amazing that the three of you, you and Valerie and Hannah, have put this together as such a small team. It's amazing for our community. So thank you guys for taking the time. We're we're a good little team. You can't deny it. We cannot deny it. And why should you? <laughs> we can and we won't. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can support our podcast by subscribing to Rooted and Reaching on Spotify or Google or Apple Podcasts. You can also show us some love by telling others in our community about the podcast. Thank you so much. And until next time.